Welcome to the Engaged Midwife Podcast. This is Missy. And this is Kara. Hi, Kara. Hi, Missy. How are you? I'm good. You know, hitting summer, getting ready to hit our stride with the kids. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I enjoy the summer a lot, you know, in an academic role, it seems like, uh, summertime is kind of nice. And then personally, I have a kiddo heading off to college in the fall. So I think we're going to have some fun this summer. I think both of us have trips to Disney planned with our kids. And both of us have trips to Europe planned, which is really exciting. (laughs) I'm like, how did we figure that out in one year? That never happens. I know. Well, it's my first time out of the country ever, actually, if you don't count Canada. And really, I was only there for a few hours. Um, So I feel like a grown-up adult. And my husband and I are going to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary, which is really exciting. So much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Summer also brings a new group of interns to me. So we see. It does, not it? It brings a lot of new grads to testing as well for midwifery. It seems Absolutely. like there's always just a few more grads from programs in the summertime. Exactly. So I think we have done so many things this year in terms of topics. And I feel like the topics that we shy away from slash don't spend as much time on are things in primary care. And it's mostly because there's so many other things in midwifery that I feel like we need to cover. True. And I think that we like to talk about the things that are more comfortable for us. So sometimes primary care is you and I also stepping outside of our comfort zone. Yeah. But this one, I think this topic today, I think is a good one. And I think it's because um, we're just seeing more of this and, um, and just even understanding the basics of this disease process, I think will benefit us as midwives. So today we're talking about asthma. Let's jump in. So I think the biggest thing, because asthma, and I think we'll touch on it in both ways, but I think not only is it a primary care issue, but it's a disease that women come into pregnancy with. And so understanding care for people with asthma in the antepartum and intrapartum periods is important. And asthma is one of those things. There are a few, there's a handful where it's like a rule of thirds, where a third of people get better in pregnancy, a third of people stay the same, and a third of people get worse. And we're not as much concerned with the two-thirds of people who get better or stay the same. It's more the people who have exacerbations of their asthma in pregnancy that we're most concerned with. Well, and that's a good point because I think so much about asthma, whether it's a pregnant patient or not, maybe it's in well-person care, primary care. It's about recognizing when there's changes in the status, whether that's improvement or worsening. And that's exactly what we should focus on, regardless of whether the patient is pregnant or not. And asthma is way more prevalent, I think, than people understand. So recent data, about 22 million people in the U.S. have asthma. and what I found really interesting about that data is it accounts for like 15 million office visits each year. That's a lot of visits. It is. And I wish I kind of had a a handle on like how many well woman visits that we do annually in a year in the U S for comparison. But I just think like 15 million office visits is a lot. And so, um, 
where you, we might not do office visits for things that are like for other chronic diseases with the same frequency. Like when people can't breathe, they are going in. Also in terms of data, 1.8 million emergency room visits each year. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So I think that's why that's the why of this podcast episode is just that it's way more prevalent than I think what people give it credit for and, and, and clearly way more serious. And, and in the last few years with COVID people who are asthmatic have become, it's become more worrisome, right? I mean, I know you're always saying to me like, Missy, you're wheezing. And I'm like, it's okay. I'm fine. Like I recognize when I can't breathe. But with COVID, that made being asthmatic way more scary. Yeah. You know, I, as you said that, I think one of the reasons that I've always been a little bit scared of asthma is when I was growing up, a a kiddo in my school died from an asthma attack. And I think that it's just, we think of it as a chronic condition. We think of it as we've got all these amazing different pharmacologic agents nowadays, but I think I still always carry in the back of my head that people can die from that. Like, this is scary. This is something not to mess around with. And, um, I, you know, it's worth having a healthy dose of um, trepidation around so that you're always aware of any changes. Yeah, I I I do think that only once in my life have I had really scary asthma things um, that landed me in the hospital for a, a minute. And I thought like, gosh, I need to do a better job of taking care of myself. Um, but, but in, with my asthma, it's more like when I have another illness, when I have a viral illness, when I have a bacterial infection, when something else is going on that affects my respiratory system, that is when I feel like my asthma is at its worst. Mm-hmm. And so I think that happens with a lot of frequency too, right? So people having viral illnesses or bacterial illnesses and just things that are airborne and how that affects then that this whole population of people who are asthmatic. Yeah. I think about asthma and seasonal allergies and kind of even eczema as all being pretty related in that like eczema is like allergies of the skin and asthma is like allergies of the airway um, you know, that kind of thinking. And so a lot of those have very similar triggers and yours may be viral illnesses, but other people, it could be some of the seasonal changes and those kinds of things as well. Absolutely. So let's, let me dive in for a minute about asthma, because I Perfect. just want to give people like an overview of what this looks like. So asthma is a chronic disorder of the airway, and it's generally characterized by bronchial hyper-responsiveness, inflammation, and airway obstruction. So just think about what those words mean, right? When people have acute asthma attacks, they usually have bronchospasm, but the underlying physiology is inflammation that causes impaired um, airflow, right? So... um, people who have really terrible asthma can have reconstruction, like physiologic reconstruction of their airways. And so it's really, um, I think, imperative that we treat this well to avoid those sort of long-term airway changes. Yeah. But um, so the good news is, there's really good literature and really good treatment algorithms for people who have asthma. 
and ways that we work in a stepwise approach to treat asthma. And I think those um, stepwise algorithms are our best tools as providers in terms of helping people who are having acute asthma events and helping people manage long-term. And I think towards the end of this, we can talk about some other things that are linked to asthma that are interesting, um, that, that are in the literature. And, um, but I think that we should start really with this, um, with this stepwise approach of how we treat asthma. Okay. So I think this is a great place to go as well. And, um, if you want the most updated guidelines, I would head over to the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute. And there were guidelines that came out in 2020 that are focused updates to the asthma management guidelines. And they are really excellent. And in the back of the document are some really great resources with this stepwise approach, but we're going to talk through that now. Yes, sorry. I'm a mainlining caffeine this morning because of uh, the need for me to go back to work. But yes, <laughs> I totally agree that um, that th- that is the guideline, right? The um, the National uh, Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. And again, this is really well researched information, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to focus in this conversation on adults. So people 12 years and older, um, obviously there's a lot of asthma in children and people that have grown up with it across their lifetimes are very familiar with their condition, but we're going to focus on the care of adults for this conversation. Yeah. Mostly because if you think about this, our scope is not taking care of pediatric patients with asthma. Right. Right. No 28 day olds or younger are having asthma. Correct. So, all right, let's, do you want to, should we just start with the people who have this intermittent asthma slash, um, what I would like to call exercise induced asthma, where they just need something here and there, what I would consider spot treatment, right? For asthmatic symptoms. So that is step one on this algorithm. And step one, is for intermittent asthma. And um, the only thing that we recommend for intermittent asthma is the short acting beta agonists. So it's SABA, if anybody is like looking at guidelines. Um, and these are inhaled short acting medications that are really effective for relief of bronchoconstriction. And so these are people who, like I said, have exercise induced symptoms. Um, and just need a fast-acting medication. And what people are thinking of with the SABA is basically like an albuterol inhaler. Yes, absolutely. And they're easy and albuterol is cheap. And um, what how we recommend that people use these um, short-acting beta agonists is you really shouldn't need them more than twice a week. Um, and if you do, then that will step you up to a different level on this approach for treatment. Right. And I think the most important thing from my standpoint, Missy, is just making sure that people have one that's not out of date is expired. Guilty. They have a refill. Yeah. Really guilty. Sometimes I look and I'm like, oh, my short acting is expired, but don't tell me that. Now I'm going to worry about you. I know. I know. But it's like funny because I have like an inhaler laying here and an inhaler laying there and Um, honestly, here's how, you know, you're in good control. 
you don't have to use your fast acting a lot. Right. Right. So that should feel like when you're talking to people about asthma and you're like, how often a good question is how often are you using your fast acting inhaler? I maybe use mine twice a year. So it's hard for me to remember to like keep an inhaler that is not expired (laughs) because I don't use it that often, which is actually a really good sign. So you can stop worrying. It is. That's a good point. I do think that, you know, you mentioned earlier that in pregnancy, it can change and we don't know, we don't really have a way to predict who's going to get better, who's going to stay the same and who's going to get worse. So even people that tell me they had exercise induced asthma or they had asthma as a child, I still go ahead and prescribe them the short acting inhaler just so they have it as a rescue if they need it, because I don't want the time that they need it to be when they figure out that theirs is expired. Right. <laughs> or if you're like me and just never pay attention to when they expire. Okay. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, it's just a thing. Um, I do want to say that like fast acting inhalers do not come without side effects. Um, Correct. Because of the mechanism of action of how they work, they very much can cause tachycardia, which is pretty normal, right? Um. But that is the biggest thing. So it can make people feel anxious, right? They're tachycardic. They're a little jittery, right? So it's just the idea of how the medication works that makes them have that kind of adverse effect. Yeah, absolutely. And when they need to use that short-acting beta agonist, um, they can do it. Um, a total of up to three treatments, 20 minutes apart if needed. But obviously, if you did three treatments, 20 minutes apart, those symptoms are going to be even more pronounced. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's the frequency of which we use a short acting inhaler that causes um, the more uh, adverse side effects. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that this was stepwise. And I think I also heard you say that if you need to use it more than two days a week, that probably means we need to step up. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. And it would be um, increasing symptoms or um, waking in the middle of the night, or again, as Missy said, uh, um, more than two days a week. Yeah. So let's go to the next step, I guess. Yeah. So next step, step two. Um, this is where we preferably start a low dose inhaled corticosteroid. Okay. Um, and this is daily. So when you have stepped up to step two, we are talking about using those, um, those inhaled corticosteroids that are anti-inflammatory. So when we think about steroids, that's the thing to remember. These are very effective anti-inflammatory agents and that they help to inhibit the release of inflammatory mediators. So cytokines, et cetera. Okay. And they then reduce airway edema. So um, what happens in terms of the pathophysiology of asthma is that these steroids will really help improve all the things. They help improve pulmonary function, prevent exacerbations of acute asthma, less office visits, less emergency room things. So I think, think about, right. If, if you're, so what I say is if you're sucking on your inhaler, right. All the time that every single, um, taking a medication every day will generally improve your quality of life. Yeah. So these are daily 
low dose steroids. You don't typically get the like, um, you know, like those symptoms that you think of, of like the really moon face and the weight gain and those kinds of things of taking a systemic, um, steroid because they're low dose. Is that right? Correct. And so many people who do this step two, which is just one, one medication, right. Of, um, one inhaled corticosteroid really do find that it can, it's very well controlled. Um, and they just feel so much better. And I feel like I've heard the term like mild persistent, like this is like, you need it because you're having more symptoms than the two days a week, but it's relatively mild. It's pretty stable. People are pretty well managed on this medication. And sometimes they'll hang out here for forever, like not needing to step up, but we're just watching them closely to see if things are worsening. If they're having more like breakthrough symptoms, they're needing to use that additional rescue inhaler more, even though they're taking the daily medication. Yes. So just to understand some of these like drugs, the things that were that you hear. Mm-hmm. Um, so Palmacort, right? That's one Flovent, um, Advir. Like these are the drugs that we're using um for that are these low dose inhaled corticosteroids. Okay. Okay. And are these the medications? I feel like I've learned and please bear with me. It's been a long time since I've managed asthma, but I feel like this is one of those that you're like supposed to rinse out your mouth after you do the, in- the inhaled corticosteroid because you it is a steroid. And so then you can end up with some side effects that aren't so pleasant. Yep. Um, like thrush or yeah. like yeast <laughs> exactly. in the mouth. And like can't imagine as an adult ever wanting anybody to have, have yeast in their mouth. Um, yeah. So yes, absolutely. It requires that you that, or I guess I should say you should rinse out your mouth every time that you use them. It's that is one of the things, right. That comes along with good patient education. Um, and, and I need, and I kind of need to go back for a second because I was talking about corticosteroids and I mentioned Advir. Advir actually is a combined corticosteroid that also has a long acting beta agonist in it, but we're going to talk about that as we talk about the stepwise process. So the the primary things that are corticosteroids are the ones that I had mentioned at first, which is the QVAR, the Palmacort, the Flovent, et cetera. Like those are the just straight um, inhaled corticosteroids. Okay. Thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you want to step up again? Should we like go to the next up from... Yeah. There. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. So if we go up from there um, and we need something more than the daily low-dose inhaled corticosteroid and that rescue inhaler, then what we could think about doing then, the preferred treatment would be daily and PRN combination of a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. And then for Motorol, and um, I'm not as familiar with all of these med- medications, but it's a long-acting beta-2 agonist. And so we we had talked about the use of the short-acting as a rescue, but this is long-acting. And so therefore, we, wouldn't, we shouldn't need the rescue as often. Yes. Also, you can go up to a higher dose on your inhaled corticosteroid. So a couple of different options when you step up, right, is... Um, do you just keep on your inhaled corticosteroid and add a long-acting beta agonist, or 
do you change up your inhaled corticosteroid? That's a great point. Yeah. So um, there's a couple of different options here and some things might work best for some while others might have a different agent that works better for them. Yeah. And, and back to the Advir situation, right? Advir actually is an inhaled corticosteroid with a long acting included. So that's when you're at this next step up, right? Um, that's when you're in what we consider step three, which is that low dose inhaled corticosteroid plus a long acting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And again, we're looking at how often people are having symptoms, how well controlled they are. If they are doing peak flows, are they having changes in their peak flows? Um, So all of these are things that we're watching closely to see if they need to step up. And then if people are significantly improved and don't have worsening or they're really stable for three months or more, we can start to think about stepping down potentially. Yes. So I don't, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on step four, five, and six as we go up. But I think that the important thing to remember as we're trending upward in this stepwise is we're increasing the the dose from low to medium to high of this inhaled corticosteroid and continuing to add agents. So making sure that we're adding that long acting beta agonist and then potentially adding allergy medicine, right? If they've got Mm -hmm. an allergic quality to their asthma or adding oral corticosteroids um, as an adjunct to their inhaled medications. So I think the most important thing for us to realize as midwives is we may be managing people who have asthma, but we're generally staying in the intermittent or step one, maybe into step two, right? People who have asthma. If people need more than just maybe an inhaled corticosteroid and a rescue, they probably need to be managed someplace besides with us. Well, I think that's a really good point. And the guidelines are really good about saying if they're step four or higher, they need to be with a specialist. So not even that, you know, as a midwife, they should be with a physician provider, but they need to be with pulmonary specialists if they're at stage four, step four or higher. Right. Absolutely. So, um, so this is another thing where you're like, how comfortable are you treating people who have asthma? And, you know, what, what is the, how does your practice feel about treating primary care things? It's interesting. Cause I heard somebody tell me a few days ago that like, if their patients need to be on thyroid medication, they don't manage that they send them out. And I was like, Oh, but they have made a decision as a group that they are, they all don't feel have the same comfort level with dealing with thyroid disorders So they send them to someone else, which I have a lot of respect for the fact that people recognize that they can't or shouldn't treat something, but don't have the comfort level. Um, So I think that as you're thinking about asthma and, and and considering what you would do for treatment of asthma, like what, is it just you and your practice that feels good about this? Or, um, you know, do you have a guideline where you say like, Hey, all of us are willing to put somebody on a short acting or on a um, an inhaled corticosteroid outside of that, like we need to send people out. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I think as you talked about, um, kind of designing a plan of care and what you feel comfortable with, um, we eventually want to talk about having an asthma action plan for every patient that has asthma. So I don't know if that's where we should go next, or if we want to spend a little bit more time talking about medications. 
Uh, no, because I want to talk about pregnancy separately, but I think an action plan is a great place to go. Okay. So I think that one of the best places to find um, your asthma action plan is through the CDC. Literally go to Google or whatever search engine you like to use and type in asthma action plan. And there are some great downloadable documents that you can use. um, And they're just really, really excellent. So one of the things that I like best about the asthma action plan is it talks to patients about knowing what their triggers are. And we mentioned a few of them earlier, but I just want to review really quickly that um, there's a lot of outdoor triggers, which are like weather and the air quality and pollen. We had a really bad ozone day here in Kansas yesterday. Um, So that could definitely be an issue where people struggle to catch their breath a little bit more. Um, indoor triggers could be related to pets and dust mites, cockroaches, mold and humidity, smoke spray scents, a lot of different things within indoor environments that could be really triggering for people. And then just as Missy mentioned, illness can be a pretty significant one. And it's not just those things like um, viral illnesses and colds and flu, but also uh, reflux or indigestion, um, severe allergies, sinus infections, some of those different things. And then the one I find so interesting is also um, emotions. And so people that deal with a lot of anxiety or stress sometimes have worsening of their asthma symptoms. And I guess I just really appreciate that um, the action plan and the CDC have recognized that our mental health um, has an impact on our physical health. Yeah, really interesting. Um, I I resemble so many of those remarks. But I really do think when we think about asthma, we think about pathophysiology. And if you're really interested in there, there's all kinds of places to go and and read about this. But it's the idea too, that like, there are all kinds of genetic components that go along with asthma. And they're so widely associated with allergies. So people who have allergies to dust, to mites, to pets, to um, environmental things like trees and grass and, you know, it's just unfortunate when you're allergic to like all the things that are in the outdoors. Right. Um, but that the allergic component too, if you treat the allergic components, the likelihood is, is that the asthma stays more in control. Right. So what we didn't talk about with medications is do we add singular? Do you add Zyrtec? Do you add some of those even over the counter medications that manage, um, manage allergies, Claritin, right? Those, all of those kinds of things that then are adjunct therapy to asthma. So what's, what I love the stepwise approach to asthma, because I think it tells us when we need to add more agents, but I don't think it always takes into account, like what is the underlying pathophysiology or etiology of their asthmatic symptoms? And how do we then, what, that, what else can we add to make that better? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I like best about the action plan and the focus on the triggers is really like that part that the patient themselves can recognize these are the things that make my condition worse and I need to avoid those things. Or I can talk to my healthcare provider about how to best prevent them from happening. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay. So the main thing about an asthma action plan is thinking about like, kind of like a stoplight, right? So green, yellow, and red, where green, things are really good. The green zone means that you're not really having a lot of coughing, chest tightness, wheezing, shortness of breath. 
um, and can do all the normal physical activities that you normally do. And people in the green may be taking a daily medication. Um, they may be doing just fine. They may only periodically have to use their rescue inhaler. But generally, when things are green, they're going really well. Yep. I love a green. I love a green day. Me too. It doesn't mean though, I think the part here to take away is that it doesn't mean you don't have to use medications to control the symptoms. It just means that the medications that you are using are controlling the symptoms. And so people that have exercise induced asthma, they may use um, a short acting inhaler before they exercise. Um, They may Um, just as you mentioned, someone may be taking allergy medication daily, or they may be using a daily inhaled corticosteroid. Those are all fine. They can still be in the green because they're not having an increase in symptoms or any problems with the disease state. Okay. So then when we get to yellow, that means that people are experiencing more symptoms. Yellow means that they're having one or more of the symptoms of cough, wheeze, chest tightness, breathing trouble, or waking up at night due to asthma. Um, and if they can only do some activities um, or they have a restriction, they just can't do everything that they normally do. Those are all things that would tell us that someone is in the yellow zone and we should take caution with that. I think when, as you're talking about this, Kara, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, I don't think people, and, and maybe it's because like, I was not diagnosed asthmatic until I was an adult. But I don't think we do enough teaching. Like, I think with pediatric asthma patients, we do a lot of this stoplight, like stoplight teaching. Like, what is your day? Are you green, yellow, or red? Like, what does this look like? Because it's a very, um, it's a great tool for young people to be able to like quantify their, their symptoms. I don't know that adults like who are, you know, diagnosed in adulthood like have gotten this good of teaching, like they probably didn't simplify it enough for well, them. It's also like, you know, everything I've learned, I learned from a kindergarten teacher, right? Like if somebody yeah. would have just like broke it down and been like, are you red, yellow or green today? Right. I could be like, oh, I, I have, I'm yellow. I'm wheezing and this and that and whatever. Um, anyway, I just, yeah, just an addition. Yeah. So what does it look like in the yellow box on this sample action plan? Well, it tells you to keep taking your green zone medication and to avoiding triggers, but then you're going to take a quick relief medication. And it very clearly spells it out on the action plan for the person so that when they're struggling to catch their breath, when they're wheezing, when they're coughing, they know exactly what to do. And anyone that's also in their house, that's one of their caregivers, is a loved one, any of that, everyone knows what the plan is. And there's going to be a quick relief medication. If they go back to the green zone after one hour, then you can just keep monitoring. But if they don't go back to the green zone within an hour of taking that that quick relief medicine, then they may do another quick relief and add an oral steroid to that. And so I think this is just really nice in that you can monitor like, I've done something about my increase in symptoms. It either got better or it didn't. If it didn't get better, here's what I need to do next. And then says, hey, you should probably talk to your healthcare provider if this is happening to you, um, you know, more frequently. Yeah. Um, and, And understanding, I think, what medications you're, like, what I need today, right? 
Yes. Based on this red, yellow, green situation. Yeah. So a red zone is severe symptoms. It's an emergency. These people are very short of breath. Um, The quick relief medicines have not helped or their symptoms are the same or worse after 24 hours of being in the yellow zone. So if you can't do your usual activities, you're very short of air, those kinds of things, this would be the red zone. It's an emergency. You're going to make sure you take your quick acting, quick relief medication. You're going to have taken your oral steroid, and then you're going to call your doctor right away. If you're in a red zone after 15 minutes, you haven't been able to get a hold of your provider, then that's a situation where you go to the hospital or call 911. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. These are the people who are acutely ill. Yes. And the danger signs just, I mean, I think it makes sense, but the danger signs are trouble walking or talking due to the shortness of breath. Um, Lips or fingernails are blue, pale, or gray. Um, those are the warning signs. And that is just obviously acute um, oxygen deprivation, um, not moving air well. And so those are the danger signs. Yep, absolutely. Um, and those are those are the emergency room visits that we were talking about in the beginning yes. of this um, of this podcast. Yeah. And then there is a section on the action plan that talks about peak flow meters and your scores on, um, you know, whether it's 80% of best score or 50 to 80% or less than 50% of best score. Um, not everyone uses peak flow meters in their asthma management, but if they did that, it helps them know green, yellow, or red zones based on their peak flow meters. Yep. I have never used a peak flow. I know that sounds crazy, except for when I was hospitalized. And so that um, people who are, are in that, like, poorly controlled or hard to control area of asthma definitely should be using a peak flow. Yeah. Yeah. So I think these are really helpful resources. We've talked about the guidelines and then we've talked about the asthma action plan, which are pretty straightforward. These are things that midwives should know. This is all concepts that midwives should know for primary care. And then also, as you mentioned in pregnancy, but I do think you wanted to talk a little bit more specifically about pregnancy. Yeah. I mean, I just want to just, it's a little asterisk on the side of this, because remember we said a third, a third, a third, right? Um, Right. But it's safer for women who are asthmatic in pregnancy to use medications than to not. So when you look at um, pregnancy categories for medications and for asthma, like you really want your state step three, step four, step five patients to maintain their medication regimen, despite the fact that they're pregnant. So, um, adverse outcomes for women who have asthma can be things like preeclampsia, small for gestational age, low birth weight, preterm labor. But if we manage asthma symptoms, well, it mitigates most of those adverse outcomes. So we know albuterol is the thing in pregnancy that we can use most safely. And so all of our pregnant patients who have at, um, persistent right daily asthma should have a short-acting beta agonist you know, on standby for everyday use. Um, you know, we the biggest thing that we see with pregnant people is this um, continued use of steroids, right? Especially, um, just the, com- the, you know, the complex things that come along with long-term steroid use, right? Um, 
but we, you, there are other things to mitigate too, right? Allergies, smoking. Um, it's one of those things that seems really intuitive to most people. Like if you're asthma, as you're, if you're asthmatic, you probably shouldn't smoke, but it's a conversation that we still need to probably have with some people. Like in general, I think it's a good recommendation to avoid smoking ever, but yes, I hear what you're saying. Right. So I think when we're talking about pregnant people with asthma, we just need to really be acutely aware of the people of the third of the population who are pregnant that are going to get worse and need, you know, different kinds of management for their asthma and pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, having now been in high risk OB for a year or so, I certainly feel like asthma is one of the things we see a fair amount. And we're just constantly asking about their medication regimen and how often they're needing to use their short acting, um, making sure, just as you said, it's all about risk benefit um, and assessment. And oxygen is really important to grow a fetus. Well, which that makes sense then, right? With low birth weight and with small for gestational age, you know, those kinds of things like that makes sense. You can't grow a baby. You can't perfuse a placenta if you're not oxygenating yourself. Yeah. Just as we talk about in like taking care of a, of a pregnant person that is collapsing, we have to take care of the patient in front of us before we can think about how the fetus is doing, because the best way to resuscitate a fetus is to resuscitate the parent. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So the, the aside, right. Is, um, there are other associated things that go along with asthma that I have found really interesting over many years of just doing research about asthma. And that is like the H2 receptors that ha- that play a part in asthma also are a lot of things that have to do with the gut. So, and people, when I say that to people, they're like, really? And I'm like, yes, there's tons of literature that will talk to you about like people who have uh, celiac, people who have gluten intolerance, people who have IBS. There are all kinds of things that go along with having a diagnosis of asthma that I find fascinating because you know, from my own personal journey of doing this, I know if I don't eat gluten, my asthma symptoms aren't as bad, which sounds crazy, but it's the inflammatory processes that go into asthma also are included in other things. Um, Another um, interesting thing is that the inflammatory process that goes along with arthritis or joint pain also um, can be very prevalent in people who have asthma. So I think as you think about asthma and treatment of asthma and just understanding the the inflammatory process, right? There are lots of other things that are associated. And I and I certainly am not saying that every asthma patient needs to be on a gluten-free diet. It doesn't work like that for some people. But I am saying that there may be ways to mitigate asthma symptoms by paying attention to the inflammatory process that has to do with food, environment, allergens, those kinds of things. That so, makes sense. Yeah. Um, and and again, if you're really interested in it, there's all kinds of books that talk about the inflammatory process of the foods that we eat. Um, there's, uh, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. Mm-mm. I think it's called The Gluten Belly, but that's not it. Anyway, if I, if I remember the name of the book that I'm thinking of, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but there are books that just talk about inflammatory process and, and 
we should do a whole podcast with somebody who understands the inflammatory process better than we do, because they would be able to tell us like so many disease processes are associated with chronic inflammation. Yeah. It just made me think we could, you know, open the whole field of autoimmune disorders and inflammation and so many different things. But I think it's helpful if we think about this, just in the example you've just provided, gluten would be a trigger for you. And it might be for many other people. And a lot of times the triggers are shared by quite a few people. Um, so it's good to have an idea of what those triggers might be. Yeah. Um, and so if, again, if it's something that you're interested in, definitely like dive into it because it, I think it's quality of life changing for people to not have to be on medications every day. I tell a story a lot, but, um, you know, at one point I was on almost $500 worth of medication a month, um, for my asthma and, um, and, and luckily, you know, I have good insurance and it covered a lot of that, but I'm like, how can I, you know, as a 30 something year old person, like do better, like how can I get rid of a lot of this medication that I'm taking that, that doesn't come without side effects, right? So not only is it expensive, but it has side effects. It just didn't feel good and, and did some research and, and decided to do this gluten-free thing. And people are always asking me about my gluten-free like journey. And this is what it was, right? I just wanted to feel better with my chronic asthma. So, um, when I started to cut gluten out of my diet, I recognized that I didn't wheeze as much. I didn't need as many medications. And I really did just start to cut long acting medications like out of my regimen. And so, you know, now I take allergy medicine every day because I know that that's something that exacerbates my asthma. But like I said, I rarely have to even use my, my, um, my short acting because my symptoms are in such good control. And I know if I'm going to, if I get sick, like if one of my kids licks me or, you know, <laughs> breathes on me wrong because, you know, children are petri dishes that I need to go back on medications. And I do that with some frequency. When I had COVID, I went back on a bunch of medications for asthma just to manage my respiratory symptoms. Um, but it really has improved my quality of life. And you know, because you've sat next to me on days when I've eaten too many things that have gluten in them, I will wheeze. People hear me audibly wheezing and they're like, are you wheezing? I'm like, yeah, I ate as much gluten as I wanted yesterday. And now I'm wheezing. It's I was just thinking I have shared a hotel room with you. Um, I'm pretty sure we have shared a, a bed. And when we eat pizza, you're going to wheeze. <laughs> I love pizza. Thankfully, we have found some good alternatives for you. I, and and I love pasta and I love like donuts. Like it's just a, it's a terrible thing to like have to give up all the things you love. Now I'm lucky that I don't have celiac because I, you know, I, I don't get like violently ill when I eat gluten -y things. But funny enough, after all these years of being off of gluten, when I do overdo it, I am very sick. Um, so it's interesting how my gut has adjusted to the fact that like gluten now being off of it, not only makes me wheeze, but it makes my belly feel like crap. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah. As you said, you love pizza and pasta and donuts. You also love breathing. So, you know, I do love breathing and you know, there's a lot of really good gluten-free food. I mean, honestly, I'm not going to lie about it. I've, um, I was just having a conversation last night with one of the midwives and she's like, you can eat Greek food all the time. You just can't have the pita. I'm like, I know, like I can eat all the Greek food cause it's got all this rice in it. So, um, yeah. Oh, and the feta. 
I know. I'm just learning to like embrace some other things. It's when I'm in Italy this summer, it's going to be real hard. But I've also been told that how wheat is processed in Europe is very different and that I might not have any symptoms, but I will take asthma medications with me just in case. It's good to be prepared. It's good. good that, prepared. that should be our takeaway message for asthma. It's good to be prepared. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this has been a great conversation. I hope that the midwives that are listening got, you know, it's it's boring to judge through medications, but I do think it's important that we have a basic understanding of what asthma looks like and how we would manage it in our patients who are both pregnant and non-pregnant. Um, and to just like have a little bit more confidence. I think part of clinical practice is having confidence that you're doing the right thing for your patients. And if you're not exposed to something enough, you don't have the confidence to treat it. Um, and you don't feel good about the outcomes for your patients. So part of the things when we talk about topics like this is they're not shiny and they're not fun. They're not like talking about evidence-based protocols for birth and the things that midwives are really like woohoo about, but it does give us a basis for doing a good job for treating, um, chronic med chronic, you know, problems that, you know, affect a lot of people that we take care of. Well, one of my favorite things from this too, Missy, is that we've talked a lot over the years about how it's important for us as midwives to know what our lane is and to stay in our lane. And I think when I have looked at stepwise approaches over the years and all those things, I get so overwhelmed by all the medications. And really, you told me here, I only need to know like two or three different medications. And I think that's what's really helpful as we break this down for midwives managing asthma, know your lane know when you need to send someone over to another lane and kind of go from there. No, absolutely. You've, you've hit it. So yeah, I very much appreciate any time I get to talk to you. I agree the same. I hope everybody has enjoyed this dive into a primary care topic. Um, we've certainly enjoyed talking about it um, with each other. Thanks for joining us for the Engaged Midwife podcast. We can't wait to talk to you again. Take care.